All right, we're in Acts chapter 7. Believe it or not, we left off in the book of Acts four weeks ago, and we're going to finish the first part of our study in the book of Acts. I'm going to look at the martyrdom of Stephen. Not the top 100 things I would have chosen to preach on today, but for a festive New Year's Eve, let's talk about death and dying. What do you say, huh? We're going to look at an amazing passage of Scripture. Not, we don't normally, by the way, we don't normally laugh when people are dying, but apparently you're a wild crowd, and uh, New Year's Eve can't get here too soon for some of you. Um, but we're going to look at the topic, dying for a cause, ultimate forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bring light to this message and that we would learn from your word, apply it in everyday life. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is part 13. We're in Acts chapter 7. Go ahead and get your notes out. If you don't have them with you, go ahead and grab some. You'll be able to follow along with that. And we ended last time with verses 51 to 53 with Pastor Scott. And I want to just kind of bring us that bridge back. Stephen has just given a blistering sermon to the Sanhedrin and essentially gives them one final zinger. They have accused him of all kinds of things. And ultimately, this is the tipping point that gets Stephen killed. He's the first Christian martyr. Actually, some would argue that John the Baptist might have been, quote, the first Christian martyr, but he predates Christ, and so you can kind of decide which one you believe that is. But the bottom line, it begs the question, what are you willing to die for? Now, I would venture to say no one in this room will have to die for the Christian faith. But it is a sobering question, what am I willing to die for? Now, we look at the indictment in verses 51 to 53, and I want to remind us of, of what he got in trouble for with these religious leaders. And before we just, you know, kind of um, sell them downstream and say, well, these guys, religious leaders, they're a bunch of jokesters, you know, like they're, they're, they deserve this blistering uh, admonishment. I want us to take a pause and look at those verses a little differently than when we finished up a month ago. And I want to ask the question, was religious hypocrisy part of what he was confronting? I believe it was. And when we look at these verses together here in a different way, before we just throw them all under the bus and say, we're so much better than they are, I want to look at those couple of verses once again just briefly and say, are there any elements of religious hypocrisy that we have in our own lives as we take a look at our own, as we kind of look in the mirror instead of out the window at them? So here's what happens. Four things. First of all, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. He calls them stiff-necked. Uh, now, I get a stiff neck, but it's not... It's usually because it's racquetball or some lame excuse because I'm too old to be running around doing that stuff. But this kind of stiff neck stuff is referring to a religious stubbornness that even when confronted with the facts that you are unwilling to see the Scripture as God intended. And they had a long history of being stubborn. They persecuted the prophets who warned them, and yet they were stubborn. And they're rejecting the Holy Spirit because Jesus describes, and the writers describe uh, Stephen as one who was full of the what? Holy Spirit. And so they're rejecting the Holy Spirit. So first principle is, do you resist God's promptings in your life? Are you ever resistant to the Holy Spirit? Number two, 
Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, you persecuted all of them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Who's that? Jesus. So number two, does this part of our lives, do we require others to agree with you or face the consequences? That's essentially what the religious establishment did. My way or the highway, do it this way, ritual, etc. And they persecuted and killed the prophets. They essentially eliminated the competition. Now, we do that today, maybe in a different way, where we kind of have this exclusive, like, I'm not going to handle, I'm not going to deal with you because you don't believe what I believe uh, theologically. And maybe we kind of have our little groupings of, of, of different theological persuasions. By the time we're done with this message, I'm going to talk about three different buckets you can put those discussions in and decide where are you going to stand on some of those things. And I guess the question I'd ask you is when you're in a theological discussion, I'm not talking about debates and being mean-spirited, but when you're in a discussion, do you always just have to win? Even if it's playful among Christian brothers and sisters, uh, do you just always have to make your point and be right? Maybe that's something to take a look at. Thirdly, what did they do? They rejected Jesus, verse 52, the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. They make no, he makes no bones about it. He calls them out. He said, you betrayed him. You murdered him. Now, we said, well, we didn't murder Jesus. How does this apply to us? How do we reject Jesus? Well, we, do, we are reminded, kind of, I want to say it kindly, but our sin put him on the cross. He died for our sin, and thankfully, his grace paid for that sin. Let, let me be clear. Every time I preach, I want to make sure you hear the essence of the gospel. It is not about what you do. It's about what he did. His imputed righteousness, he paid for the penalty of our sins on the cross. Number four, how else can we be religiously hypocritical? You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Number four, we receive God's law partially and only if it fits your worldview. That's what they were doing. They kind of picked they kind of pick and choose those parts of the scriptures that they wanted to follow. And even though the angels delivered it to them, there was a major conflict between what they believed in their behavior, and quite frankly, they were willing to tell others how to live, but Jesus called them out in a different way. What did he call those religious leaders? White-washed sepulchers or, you know, graves. And so, um, it, it is very interesting. Stephen is calling out religious people who have an air of piety but don't quite have it together as it appears to be. And so maybe how we do this is maybe we tell others how to live, but we don't follow our own advice. Or maybe we like to pick and choose those things in Scripture that are hard truths that we don't want to have to acknowledge. And I won't go a litany of those things, but you all know there are things you're like, oh man, I wish God wouldn't have put it in the Bible quite that way. That's kind of harsh, it seems like. In fact, when you're dealing with people who are far from God, they'll oftentimes bring up these top 20, 30, 40, 50 objections to the Bible, and oftentimes it involves the character of God in the Old Testament. Why was He so vengeful, or et cetera, et cetera, and they ignore the part of where God is loving and kind, et cetera. So uh, do we kind of pick and choose those parts of Scripture that we have a difficulty with? Now we get to the actual intimidation of what went on with Stephen in verses 54 to 58, and we, I'm going to give it to you in three scenes. For those of you who are actors... Three scenes, scene number one, there's the guy, they're enraged. Look at the provocation in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now, who are the they? The religious leaders hear Stephen's indictment to them. They're upset. They grind their teeth. Now, I didn't believe this could happen, but I did it for service and everybody heard it. So, let me illustrate what grinding your teeth sounds like. 
yeah, it's disgusting. Here, I'll give you something else. Grinding your teeth is kind of like old school, got to be 50 or older to remember this. I'm putting my fingernails on a blackboard. I'm going to screech down that, all right? The more disgusting sound is anytime you're in your car and you cut it too close and it's scraping the side of your car on your garage door. Not that I did that recently, just, just saying. Um, but they are enraged. They're grinding their teeth. Um, this out-of-control gnashing of the teeth, rage, is described in Psalm 35, 16, Luke 13, 28. And really, a mob frenzy is developing all around Stephen. Now, remember, this is his third speech to them. Three times he's imploring them. In chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, uh, he presents the truth to them. 5, 29 to 32, he presents the truth to them. And they get more and more angry. Now, this is setting the stage because you're going to see that Judaism and Christianity begin to diverge from this point forward. And there is a separation. So do you want to know historically and theologically, when did Judaism and Christianity part ways? It's right here. This is, this is the intersection where Judaism is going to go this direction, Christianity is going to go that direction, Stephen's the center point, and who's going to become prominent in the rest of the book of Acts? His name is Paul, and we're going to see him a little later here in just a moment in this uh, encounter. Now, scene number two. There, he's enraptured, and we see his preview in verses 55 and 56. But he, who's he? Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, there it is again, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is very, very, there's so much to unpack here. First of all, where do we see Christ today? Look at Colossians 3.1. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, go back to your verse. Where is Christ? Is he sitting or standing? Is there a conflict? No. Let me explain that. Why is Jesus standing when the rest of the scripture says he's going to be sitting? When he's sitting at the right hand of God, that is his completed work and what he's done in your life, representing the fact that his job is done. He is standing because I think of two things. Number one, because Stephen knows he's about to die, and God's given him a glimpse into the throne room, and there is Jesus welcoming him to heaven. Some say Jesus is standing because he's the lawyer advocate of Stephen, representing his case before the Almighty God. This is one of your children. This is the one who's given his life to you, God. Welcome him to the kingdom. Whichever view you take, he's standing just like we do when we would, we would stand up to welcome an honored guest in our home. Now, I want to say something else here. He uses a name for Jesus. What is it? It's a three-letter name. It's called the Son of Man. Now, why wouldn't you say Jesus, the Most High, the God of all creation? Why does he use the word Son of Man? That is a specific theological term primarily used by Jesus to describe himself. Now, you say, why is that important? Because just like Jesus saying he was the Son of Man, when he said that, what did the religious, religious leaders do with that, with Jesus? They did what? They flipped out because he's essentially saying he is God. It's a, it's a God term. It sounded kind of counterintuitive to us because we see Son of Man like, well, that's re, re, uh, describing his humanity, but actually it's a, a, it's a sign of his deity. And so Stephen is confirming that he believes that Jesus had the right 
to claim to be the Son of Man. And he's in, kind of on the side saying, and Jesus is the only way you're going to get to heaven, 1 Timothy 2.5. And so it's not through ritual. It's not through all the things we do. We don't earn favor with God. It's through only Christ's death on the cross through the Son of Man. Now, here's something fun. As I did a little study, he got a little glimpse of heaven. Now, there's all kinds of books written about, you know, you know do you see heaven before you die? Do you see a white light? What goes on on your deathbed? But Stephen is one of five people in the Bible who get a little glimpse into the throne room of God. Now, let's, I'm going to ask you who do you think those other four are in a moment, and you'll have a little audience participation here, so get ready. I want to take somebody off the list right at the first, and that's Moses, because Moses doesn't see heaven or the throne room, but who does Moses see? He sees God himself, like, he gets so close to God, he gets a suntan with an unbelievable glow that lasts through the winter, let me tell you. And so, if, if you don't know that passage, the Shekinah glory kind of radiated off him. But other than Moses, there are four, and other than Stephen now, uh, who are the four other people who see God? Now, this is again, it's, it's New Year's Eve day. Let's, let's pick some names out. And if you, Paul clearly saw a glimpse into heaven on his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. You see that in 2 Corinthians 12, it's described. Who else? John, writing the book of Revelation in chapter 4, gets a glimpse. Yeah, who else? These are, the next two are a little harder. Isaiah, who could not get Isaiah? Well, apparently I didn't because I had to look it up. Isaiah chapter 6, all right? And then one last one. This is a little more obscure. Ezekiel, we have a winner here. Awesome. Ezekiel, the wheel in the middle of the wheel, Ezekiel chapter 1. So those five all got a little glimpse in heaven. I'm guessing that none of us will get that glimpse. We'll just go right to be with Jesus. Now, the bigger question is, in taking application for us looking at this particular text, and you see how Stephen responds. He's about to die, but he gets this preview of heaven. What should our response be to persecution? Now, I would suggest that most of us are never, like I said, aren't going to die for our faith, but I want to ask you a question. Have In any conversation you've ever had with somebody, did you ever feel like there was a time where you were a, maybe a bit put in a corner, ever felt defensive, like you felt like people were attacking your faith. Anybody ever feel that? There's three, four, five. I think maybe, now maybe some of you, I use the attacks, not the right word, but there are times where you've defended your faith and people have been adamant and they've been pushy and whatnot. How do we respond and how do you know what to say when you're feeling that kind of persecution? Not maybe for your life, but for, you know, the honor of Christ. Let me read you an interesting passage from Luke chapter 12. Look at it on the screen. And when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Most of you have never been brought up on heretic charges. Thank goodness. I wonder how we would have handled the 1500s in the modern day Reformation when religious leaders are going at each other's throats for declaring what we now claim to be the absolute, you know, gospel truth of the Scriptures. But I do know this, when I'm talking to someone about spiritual things and they are, are kind of pushing back, I've learned I, I don't need to come back strong. I don't have to come out hard. I don't have to come out swinging. I don't have to come out with all the answers. What I do have to have is confidence that I'm going to let the Holy Spirit give me the right words to say at the right moment 
for such a time as this. And maybe you've been in that moment where you don't know about what you're saying, all of a sudden you say this thing and you go, where did that come from? I have no idea. Well, I know where it came from. It came from the Holy Spirit. He gave you the words at the right time to say the right thing. Now, part of that comes because you're prepared. You study God's Word. Bring it back to my remembrance. That's why I don't think students, God answers those prayers. Help me to, to, to get remember everything that I studied for this test. That's the key, that I studied for this test. You know, don't invent it out of thin air. You, you need to do your homework here. And so in the same way, we don't have to fight. We don't have to defend ourselves. We allow the Holy Spirit to speak through us. Here's scene number three. He's ensnared, and here's the punishment in verses 57 and 58. But they, again, religious leaders, cried out with a loud voice and, I can't believe this is what they did, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Anybody willing to stand up and enact what they just did? Because this is pretty funny. Look at the script. What did they do? Anybody willing to stand up and do it? Do it. Stand up and show me what they did. They put their... Anybody who has a three-year-old grandchild knows this routine. Come on. They stood up. They put their hands in their ears and went, blah, 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 blah. We're not listening to you. Blah. Or something like that. It probably was in Yiddish, though. All right? This is unbelievable. They're so upset. They they don't want to hear. That's the ultimate, and I'm not listening to you. Talk to the hand. Now, this word, and they rushed together at him. So imagine he's presenting his case, and these guys just come to beat the pulp out of him, and they're going to stone him, we see in a moment. This word rushed at him is hermao, which is the Greek word, same word used when Jesus uh, uh, cast the demons from the man into the swine, the pigs, and they go off the cliff on the Sea of Galilee, demon-possessed. You see that in Mark 5.13 and Matthew 8.32. And it's, it's this mad rush of adrenaline and energy. Now, I'll give you a little sidebar here. Uh, I'm, I'm probably pr- raining on the parade when it gets announced officially. But if you want to be in that place and see where the swine went over the hill in Galilee, we're doing it. We're taking a group of you to Israel in November 2018, and we'll get a chance. And when you drive around the Sea of Galilee, I've been there a couple times, there's only one place where they can go off the cliff, even 2,000 years later. And we'll show you where we think that place is. We'll show you where the, where the feeding of the 5,000 was and how that is a natural amphitheater where they could have preached the gospel. So that's, that's a sidebar, all right? So rushed um, is what they did. Now, this is the first overt act of aggression against a Christian, although, again, John the Baptist was beheaded. And this begins the persecution of Christians that lasts for several hundred of years. Now, they decided to stone him. Now, this is not a Roman. If it was a Roman deal, well, they would have done what to him if it was a capital offense? Would have crucified him. This is a Jewish deal, and stoning was reserved for certain reprehensible acts. In Jewish law, we know that people got stoned for what? What was one example of something in the Gospels? Huh? Adultery. So they, they, they catch the woman in adultery. By the way, ladies, have you always wondered, why is the woman the one who gets stoned? I think there were two involved in this deal. That's a whole other deal. Another thing we should talk about later. Um, but he's being stoned because of what? Begins with a B. Blasphemy. Right. Blasphemy. And you can see that in Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 17. Now, 
They're just treading so carefully because they kind of have a semblance of legality in doing it. Look in your text. You couldn't stone people in the city limits of Jerusalem. Where could you stone them? Look at your text here. They took him out of the city. So outside the city gates, outside of the wall. So they're going to stone him out there. Secondly, did the Sanhedrin have the authority to stone Jesus? No. So they really kind of you know, bifurcate the law there and they kind of execute him without any authority. And thirdly, the one thing they did do that was legal is if there was a trial and it was proven that someone was blasphemous, then they could stone him and, and they did do that. At the end of that verse, they laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named who? Saul. This is going to be very important as we study the book of Acts going into the new year. Saul sees the stoning of Stephen. I'm going to tell you why I think that's critical to his conversion in just a moment, all right? In just a moment. So in light of all that, as he's dying, we see, we see Stephen's prayer in chapter, uh, in the chapter 7, verses 59 to 60. And I want to say four things about Stephen as he faced death. And I would like to say, I would like these four things to be true of me when I face my maker someday. I'm not ready, Lord, I'm not ready yet, but you know, someday, someday. Number one, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 59, he was ready receive my spirit. No fear of death. I'm on my way to see you, Lord. I'm ready to meet my maker. Now, this is a somber, kind of a somber question. I know it's New Year's Eve. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? I've told you before, but it, it bears repeating because it's one of the funniest things that ever happened to me about this high, are you ready to meet your maker story. You know, years ago, I was a youth pastor and um, I was bungee jumping in Panama City Beach, Florida with a bunch of high school kids, and, and um, it was run by a church, and it was really cool, and so I, I'm, a, I'm afraid of heights. I am just like, you know, but I did it because I was guilted into it because the other two youth pastors did it, and I didn't want to be, you know, loser, so I did it, you know. <laughs> by the way, this is the epitome for young people. This is the epit epitome of peer pressure, just so that you're 34 and you're still feeling it. So, I get up there, I'm ready to bungee jump, there's a big yellow stunt pillow, and I'm looking down, I'm bungeed in, and in black electrical tape, on the pillow, it says, are you ready to meet Jesus? Oh. I go, that's a bad deal, man, I'm ready to jump, are you ready to meet Jesus? And I, the guy go, looks at me, he goes, he goes, pretty good, doesn't I? I go, yeah, that's pretty good, and I am ready. He goes, then one, two, three, and I jumped, and I wet my pants. No, I didn't, but it was, it was terrifying. My question is, are you ready to meet Jesus today? I don't know how long you have to live. We don't know. But are we ready to meet Jesus? I'm preparing this sermon, and I was thinking about, you know, how fragile life is. That, that's been kind of in juxtaposition for us this past year with my daughter having little ones and announcing a fourth one on the way, and then caring for an 85-year-old father-in-law. My wife's the primary caregiver for him, and knowing that he doesn't have much time. You know, he's got progressive, debilitating Parkinson's. And so the juxtaposition of the joy of a birth of a future grandbaby and the impending death of a, of a father-in-law is kind of the world I live in. And as I'm reading this and I'm thinking about this text, for some reason, the Lord gave me, spoke to my heart and said, you need to call your friend Tim. 
See, Tim Petty was my account accountability partner, guy that I, I knew since college. We've done a lot of life together. When I first became a senior pastor, he'd been a senior pastor about 20 years by the time I became a senior pastor. I was kind of a late bloomer. I did my first senior pastorate when I was in my 50s, you know. And um, I lived in Moore Park. He lived in Santa Maria. And um, we would meet, you'll love this for those of you who know Carpinteria, we would meet at the spot uh, to have like tacos and taquitos and burgers. And he'd drive down, I'd drive up, and it was like a three-hour lunch once a quarter. And we'd talk and such an encouragement because you could just let it all out and no one knew. He didn't know the people in my church. I didn't know people in his church. And we most of the time talked kindly about our folks. <laughs> Occasionally we would like, and that knucklehead, you're kidding me. Yeah. And then what'd you do? Oh, I wanted this. But you didn't. No, I didn't. But you wish you could have. Oh yeah. And you just relive it and you felt better and life was good and you ate some more taquitos, you know? We did that for a number of years and then he moved to the state of Washington and I've been following him on Facebook, and he has cancer. He has brain tumors. And um, he had three to start with, and he had a little renaissance in June, and he, he was walking again, and he was talking. And, and as I've been watching it, just he's been going downhill. And the latest Care Bridge Journal entry was there's too many to count, over 20, and he's going into hospice. And I haven't talked to him for a couple years. You know, we kind of grew apart. He's living away. We're busy. And so, I'm sitting here in my office at 6 o'clock Thursday night about to preach this text. And I'm asking myself, am I ready to meet my maker? And here I know him, one of my best buddies is ready to meet his. And I got this, like, we'll pick up the phone and call him. Now, when you're such a bastion of logical control with no emotion like this body is filled with, <laughs> that is not a smart move to do one hour before you're about to preach to call your best buddy who's dying. So I picked up the phone and Jeanette, his wife, answered and I said, man, I, I, it's been a while and I don't know if you remember me. Oh, I remember you. And she said, honey, this is John Irwin. I said, Hi, John. I said, Tim, are, can you talk? Of course. And I, if he would have said more, I'm a preacher. That's what I do. You know, that's what he would have said. And we talked for about 20 minutes. And I covered the things with him. And I appreciated it. I said, Man, you are so faithful. He worked for a tough church and they ate him alive. And he was so faithful and he didn't lash out. And he finished strong. And you loved your kids well. And we just talked about those talks we had at the spot. The reason I'm telling you this is because it hit me again. Friends, life is short. You don't know when your day to meet Jesus is. And I'm not here to guilt you, scare you, none of that. What I want to do is to encourage you and so I said, Tim, I know you're not preaching, but I get to preach this week. He goes, and he, even he made the joke, yeah, that's because you're the associate pastor, John. <laughs> I mean, even on our phone call, he brought it up. That was pretty funny. I said, so you get to preach today, Tim. I'm going to get to this section, and I explained it, and I said, what do you want me to say to my church today? 
And he very simply goes, that's easy. Live each day as if it was your last. Friends, live it. Live it to the fullest today. I don't know what God's called you to, what you get to do this year in 2018, but live it for His glory. Live it with no regrets. Don't look backwards. Charge forward. Take the hill because Jesus is precious to us. And live in light of that fact. Live in light of eternity. Live each day as if it's your last. One of the families pulled me aside and said, now you need to explain to the kids if living each day as it's your last doesn't mean it's an unlimited free-for-all on all the ice cream they can eat today. No, I, I get that. Number two, he was redemptive. Look at how he responded. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In his death, he's forgiving his tormentors. Now, honestly, friends, when someone's picking on you verbally, you don't want to forgive them. You just want to clobber them, don't you? You want to come back with a verbal jab. If, in fact, someone's been really mean-spirited to someone you love, you want to take them out. And yet, he has none of that. Do not hold this sin against them. I wonder where he saw that. Do you think he might have seen... Was he a, could he have been an observer at the cross when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Can't prove it, but I, I might, he might have been there. So even though they're in uncontrolled rage, he's willing to forgive. I want to ask you a simple question. Is a forgiving spirit part of your DNA? Is a forgiving spirit part of your DNA? It is hard if someone has wronged you. I get it. It is hard when a spouse has abused trust with you. It is hard when an employer has lied to you. It is hard when someone you love has been disloyal to you. I get it. But could we pray that a forgiving spirit would be part of the DNA that is a part of who we are? By the way, by and large, I think this church, you're a forgiving church. You're especially forgiving to the preachers in this pulpit. Because we say some really quirky things sometimes. We go, oh, why did I say that? Why, can I have that one back? Reel it in. No, it's there. Gary, cut that out on the video, please. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Are we forgiving? Number three, he was released. Look at this. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, he didn't really fall asleep, right? We get that. He died. It's, it's, a, it's a symbolic for the idea of he died. And it wasn't some unconsciousness. He, he actually died, and he went immediately to heaven. And I want to teach a little theology for about 90 seconds here. When you die as a Christ follower, where do you go the moment you die? You go to where? Heaven. Some of you go up in faith traditions where there's a middle ground and it begins with a P. We don't go to the P place. We don't go to purgatory. There's no purgatory. That didn't sound the right. That's really one that's, that came out. Let me take it back. Uh, yeah, there's no middle ground, all right? There's no holding place. There's no unconscious state called soul sleep. You go to be with Jesus. No more pain. No more suffering. And so, 
He's claiming that scripture, and we can see that in 2 Corinthians 5.8, write it down, Philippians 1, 21 to 23, and we see this throughout Scripture that when someone dies, they go immediately, if they're a Christ follower, to be with Jesus. That's your hope. That's the blessed hope. And so we see the Lord promised the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, Luke 23, 43, parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, 19 to 31, Revelation 6, 9 to 11, the tribulation saints, we go to be with Jesus when we die, and that's something worth claiming. And then lastly, he was remarkable. Now, I'm not going to read all of these. For those of you watching the video, you need to download the notes and look at the nine comparisons between Stephen and Jesus. I'm going to make go out on a limb. I think Stephen, more than anybody else in the New Testament, was more like Jesus than anybody else, more than Paul, more than John the Baptist, more than any of the other disciples because look at how he lived his life. Look what happened to him. Look what happened to Jesus. They're both wise and persuasive. They both were confronting the religious establishment. They were brought in front of a mock trial. False witnesses were used to fix the trial. The Pharisees stirred up people against them. They were both accused of blasphemy and not keeping the law. They were both rejected by religious leaders. They were both murdered illegally. They both prayed to God to forgive their executioners. They both died outside the city and were buried by devout godly men. And, they, and ultimately, the description of Stephen is he is full of the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a man more like Jesus than Stephen? What's the impact? And we'll finish with this. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, remember the young man holding the cloaks? And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Note that. I'm going to come back to that. And this is where Pastor Scott will pick up in two weeks, in chapter 8, verse 1. What's the impact on Paul? He's initially an observer. He's not getting his, his hands dirty. He's, he's kind of watching you know, but not participating, just kind of like, you know, Pilate, you know, washing his hands of this dirty deed. But he cast his stamp of approval. He was all in. Yeah, take this guy out. But I want to make a theological guess, an assertion potentially. I think this is the moment where seeds of doubt begin like a little trickle of water coming out of, of a faucet that begin to pound his conscience to say, hmm, I wonder if I have this all figured out. Why? Because of Stephen's unbelievable response to facing death. He doesn't lash out. He sees Jesus. He gives him glory. He asks God to forgive these people who are literally murdering him. And I think that caused a little seed of doubt in Saul's mind, and in a few chapters, we're going to see that, that seed blossom into a full-blown full uh, full confession of faith. Plus, he heard him preach three times, right? And it ended badly every time, you know, <clears throat> for Stephen, it got worse and worse until they killed him. First time, they just chastised him. Second time, they flogged him. Third time, they killed him. So, it made an impression on Saul's conversion. What was the impression on, impact on the church? Two things. There was distress. Literally, they're under attack if you're taking notes. There was distress. 
And it costs the church dearly. People are dying. People are scattering. And number two, people are scattering. It's the dispersion that James 1 talks about causes the church to scatter. They're running for their lives, kind of like the Jews in Poland in World War II. Uh, But who didn't run? This is why I said, let's come back. Look at the end of that phrase. Who didn't run? Except who? The apostles. Remember when Jesus is going through his trials and crucifixion, they run like scaredy cats, right? We're out of here. Peter denies them three times. But this go around, they're standing firm. In just a few short months, think about this, their faith goes from fear, knee-knocking, kind of trembling to I'm standing. I'm standing for God. I'm not running. I'm going to be here to finish what God called me to do. What's our impact on believers today as we wrap this up? I said earlier that there are times you get in discussions, and you got to decide how you're going to handle those discussions. And I, I shared this concept before a few years ago, but so many of you are new. I want to just refresh your memory. I believe in a theological discussion, and by the way, it's interesting. Was there a discussion? There wasn't much of a discussion. Stephen's doing the talking. They're doing the killing. That's kind of how it worked, right? There wasn't much of a, a give and take there. But in our lives, when we're in a theological discussion, I would say you're going to have those discussions are going to fall in one of three buckets, one of three buckets. The first one is, what are the things that you're willing to die for? That you're saying, hey, this is worth dying over. Now, most of us would say on a personal level, probably the only people you'd ever die for is that family member sitting next to you or your kids or your grandkids, you know, you're in defense of your family, right? I love you a lot as one of your pastors, but I'm probably not going to take a bullet for you. I might, but it would be, yeah, I don't know, you know? We, let's be honest, right? Probably wouldn't die. You're going to protect your family. But I'm talking theologically here. There's only a handful of things worth dying for, and I think that's the gospel, the essence of the gospel, that Jesus is God, not just a mere man. And if someone had to make me recant, I'm not going to recant to that. And most of us have not, we've read the stories, but we've, we've never had faced you know, death because of our theological convictions. The next bucket is what are we going to defend? This is where the world we live in. And that would be where I would place our doctrinal statement. That's the, yeah, I defend that. The stuff in, in fact, our elders, oh, long-suffering men, we spent a year plus going through a policy manual, maybe two years, maybe it's longer than that, maybe it's kind of like purgatory, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that was for John Spock. Um, but we spent a lot of time just reviewing our theological statement. We're saying, no, we're standing on those things. You know, we had a few tweaks grammatically, but that's about it. Those are things worth defending. But I would say the vast majority, especially in your discussions with non-believers, fall in the third bucket, and that's the discussion bucket. You're not going to die for it. You don't even have to really defend it, but let's be open to discussing these things. And if it's other Christians, there's a whole lot of things that we don't have to agree on. The doctrinal statement that we have is the minimum theological glue that says, this is what we're about. But there's a hundred plus things or more hundreds of things where good Christians disagree about the interpretation of that passage or this passage or what's going to happen and who's the Antichrist mother-in-law and all of these things, right? And those are things worth discussing, but they're not worth defending and they're not worth dying for. And what I would suggest is I think there's less than 3% of things you're going to really die for theologically. Maybe about 20% of the stuff that we talk about you'd defend 
and it's probably 80, 75 to 80% of stuff. It's just a discussion topic. Don't make that an item for your hobby horse to divide over. Now, as we wrap up, you say, what did that have to do with the title? Because I said, dying for a cause, ultimate forgiveness. Because there's one other thing, if I go back to the first bucket, the die for, this is something that I'm thinking about. I, I did a post early this morning on Facebook, and I, I wrote 10 affirmations. But I'll tell you one that I didn't put. Because I'm a little embarrassed by it. Because I wish it was more true of me today and should be more true. The scripture says, I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. So I can tell you today, in 2018, I want to die to self. I want to die to the idea that I have to always be right and win the argument. I want to die to the self that says I'm selfish and serve me. I want to serve better. I want to crucify the old man, and that's the old man, and, and I've been sanctified in Christ, but, you know, maybe you have a stubborn habit that just you got to deal with this year. Those are some of the personal things. They're not theological things. Those are the things I want to die to. And so as we close, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and before they sing, I'm going to just ask you to reflect on a few things, and if it speaks to you, then just raise your hand and say, yeah, I agree with that, Okay. Nobody's looking around. Let's just pray. Bow your heads, would you? Lord, today we realize that Stephen died for his faith. He died for a cause. He was the ultimate and a forgiver. But in a more pra in an equally practical way, Lord, there's some things we got to die to as believers. Maybe you're out there and you're you're thinking, man, I got to die to an addiction that's been haunting me and chasing me for a long time. If you have to die to an addiction, would you just kind of lift your hand up like, I, I got to deal with that this year, okay? Some of you need to die about an attitude or a belief system that's holding you back because you're just, you're not willing to let go of something or forgive someone. Raise your hand if you got to die to that this year, okay? Some of you live in a prison of fear and worry and you, you're like a pinball machine vacillating back and forth between those two things you gotta die to that would you raise your hand fear or worry okay Lord I don't know what it is but I know that if I'm gonna be crucified with Christ I need to become more like Christ and so Lord I pray in my dealings with people in 2018 I'd really sort those three buckets out in my own life what I'm willing to die for, what I'm willing to defend, what I'm willing to discuss. And I'm so grateful you gave us Stephen as an example of how to be like Christ and live for Christ. May I be that kind of forgiver in my own life. In Jesus' name, amen. If grace is an ocean, we are sinking in that grace today. Amen. And so I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you as we end this year and go into 2018. Would you bow your heads as I pray over you today? And now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling, to the only wise God be glory and power, dominion and majesty now 
and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend, what's left of the holiday, and we'll see you next week.